0: Father God, we just uh, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be able to worship today, to be able to come together in fellowship, to be able to uh, sing your praises. And God, we're we're thankful for your word, which teaches us and instructs us. And we just pray that you would be um, our teacher this morning. I ask that the message that you would want to have proclaimed would not in any way be hindered by me. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just in case uh, you've uh, missed uh, a Sunday or two, let's do just a basic little recap of the story of Esther, uh, which we've covered so far. Esther was an orphan girl who was raised by her much older cousin, Mordecai, and they were Jews living in the land of Persia under the rule of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, same guy, and this king was a rather hot-tempered and impetuous man. Uh, During uh, a big banquet in a drunken rage, he uh, banished his queen from the palace, and and then in order to replace her, uh, many young virgin girls from around the kingdom were gathered together into the capital city. They were pampered and beautified for uh, up to a year and uh, then given to the king so he could select his new queen. And Esther, through God's providential care and movement, uh, was was part of that. She was one of the girls gathered in. She found favor in the eyes of the official there and so received the best um, uh, place in in the harem and then found favor in the eyes of the king and, and was finally selected queen. And we see God's hand through all of that. Now, through this process... Mordecai had warned her not to let her Jewish heritage be known. Um, we don't know why. Chances are that might indicate that there was already in the kingdom some anti-Semitic feelings or, or thoughts going on. Uh, but um, she had kept that secret. But uh, some time after Esther became queen, Mordecai uh, discovered an assassination plot against The king, and he turned in the culprits, and the would-be assassins ended up being found guilty and hanged. And that seemed to be the end of that story, but uh, those of you that know Esther know that's going to come back up in the future here. Later on, after that incident, the king promoted uh, uh, what we can only assume was a personal uh, friend of his, a guy named Haman, to Grand Vizier, the second uh, most powerful position in the kingdom uh, uh, beside the king himself. And the king commanded all of his other servants to bow down and pay homage to Haman. And that was more than just a sign of respect. This would have been an act of worship. And, of course, any good uh, religious believing Jew could not do that, knowing that the command from God was to worship God and God alone. And so uh, Mordecai would not bow down. And... um, this enraged Haman to the point where he not only wanted to to kill Mordecai um, for his his uh, denial, but but everyone connected to Mordecai. He wanted the entire race of Jews to be exterminated. And, and Haman convinced the king to make that uh, a proclamation a royal proclamation, which means it could not be changed. It was a set-in-stone law, and uh, that law read this. It said it was to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which was the month of Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Now, that date was almost a year away. Uh, you remember I t- told you a Haman, very superstitious, casting lots called poor, uh, casting those lots, uh, and, and that's the date that came up as, as the best date to carry out this nefarious evil deed. And, and so, uh, you know, it's almost a year away, but, you know, 11 months probably doesn't seem like a very long time when you're the one with the death s- sentence under you and, and you've only got that le- time left to live. Uh, and notice this proclamation, uh, who it went out to, right? It says it went out to all the peoples of the kingdom. So in other words, this, this law uh, was g- giving every citizen the right to kill any and every Jew that he knew and then the right to plunder his home, to steal all of his goods. So now you've got the motivation to, to knock him off. And, and so basically what this was, was a one-day moratorium on murder as long as whoever you murdered was a Jew. You were fine. It was okay. And and, and this posed a very real threat, obviously, to the extermination of the Jews. And uh, um, that helps us understand then... Mordecai's reaction as we move into chapter 4 then. That that helps us understand Mordecai's reaction. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. Now, ripping your clothes, uh, wearing sackcloth, which was a very rough garment, usually made out of, like, a coarse black goat hair, Uh, and and then pouring ashes on your head were were all symbols and signs of an intense anguish and and grief. And and for religious Jews, these these symbolic actions were always, or at least almost always, uh, accompanied by times of prayer, confession, and worship. And, And even though none of those things are specifically mentioned, one would think and assume that that would be true in this case as well. This is the type of event that causes a person to begin thinking about God. You know, when a person is staring down the barrel of of his own or her own death, that leads you to evaluate your your life, eternity, your relationship with God. And so it wasn't just Mordecai who was mourning. Verse 3 says, In each and every province where the command and the decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with feet fasting, weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it's possible that maybe many of these secular Jews, the ones who had pretty much turned their back on God up to this point because, you know, life was going good. We were making money. We were comfortable. Everything was going fine. What do we need God for? I mean, He let us down anyways. That's why we ended up here in captivity. So why should we follow Him? Perhaps many of those began to seek God with their impending death. It makes you look at things differently. And obviously, the religious Jews like Mordecai, they were, were seeking and imploring God. So Back to Mordecai. He, he wasn't just weeping and wailing in the privacy of his own home, which is the way we tend to do things as Americans, right? Uh, we don't want anybody else to, to see or to hear. But this says that he went out in the city streets uh, and, and weeping and wailing loudly. Yeah, and this wasn't just a guy kind of holding it in on himself and, and walking down the streets. He was just wailing out loudly and bitterly through all the city streets right to the king's gate, which would have been the main city square. This was the, the most public place you could get in the town. And uh, he had to stop at the king's gate because it was against the law for anyone in sackcloth and ashes, anyone in mourning uh, attire, to go into the king's gate because, you know, the king doesn't really want to see a bunch of sad people. And and so it was against the rules to go in there. Um, And and, and, uh, we find that this was not an unusual thing in Persia. The the ancient Roman uh, historian Herodotus uh, wrote that uh, weeping and wailing loudly in public w- was a fairly common uh, thing in the Persian culture when you were deeply grieved when you're you facing a time of great anguish. You went public with it, uh, you know, kind of like, kind of like putting it on Facebook nowadays, I guess. <laughs> S- same idea. You just go out and do that. A- anyway, Mordecai. Uh, stands at the, the king's gate, wailing loudly and weeping. And as he no doubt hoped and expected, Esther heard about the commotion that he was making. And, and at this point, she has no idea why um, he is doing this. She doesn't know what the problem is. She just knew that he was in anguish. Uh, look at verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Well, that's, that's true empathy, right? It so says she writhed in anguish, and she didn't even know what was going on. All she knew was that he was heartbroken, he was wailing and weeping, and that was enough to make her uh, sad as well. And it kind of shows the depth of the relationship that they had. And we don't know for sure why she sent him the extra clothes to get him to take off. You know, it's not normal to just say, hey, oh, come on, quit wailing and weeping. Quit. Uh, I, I don't think that was her intent. Perhaps it was the idea that if he would take off the, the sackcloth and ashes and put on decent clothes, he could come within the king's gate, and then maybe they could have a conversation and and sh- and talk about it. But he wouldn't do that. And why would he not do that? Because it it emphasized to her. It showed her. How serious of a situation this was, he could not stop mourning about it that 's how how serious this situation was. So Esther summoned a, a particular uh, eunuch from among all her servants named Hethick. Uh, apparently, this was a guy that she just trusted completely. And I, I mentioned, uh, I believe it was last week, that she didn't really have a lot of contact with people outside of the palace. Her friends would have come from within the the maids and, and the eunuchs that were uh, serving her. The king had uh, several male attendants, eunuchs, uh, uh, chamberlains that were over his harem and, and over the queen as well and, and, and attending to all of their needs, but obviously he, he didn't want any hanky-panky going on between any of these male servants and his harem and especially the queen, so they were all eunuchs. And, and Esther uh, had apparently developed a good relationship with this one. She trusts him, so she sends him to Mordecai find out what's going on. And so when Hathak arrives at the king's gate and he's now he's looking around the city square for Mordecai, pretty easy to find because he's the guy weeping and wailing loudly in, in, in there. And he goes up to him and says, Esther wants to know, what, what's going on? Tell us what's happening. And verse 7, Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Now, when I first read that verse... It made me do a little bit of double-talk. I mean, I've read it many times before, but when I was really trying to slow down and read it this week for study, it made me do a double-take because you notice what he says there? Mordecai told him everything that happened to him. And I'm thinking, wait, you're, you're worried about you? We're talking about the whole destruction of the entire race of the Jews here. It's not just about you, what happened to you. And then I got to thinking about how he had to be feeling. This is all my fault, right? Haman, his hatred and his plot to kill the Jews was tied directly to Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him, to, to pay homage to the man. And, and I'm thinking that Mordecai's weeping and wailing was not just for this proclamation and, and, and the death threat against the, the Jews, but also because of his guilty feelings that had to be tormenting his soul. If it wasn't for me, none of this would be happening. Can't you see him having those thoughts? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I know in my own experience when I've sinned, when I've done wrong, the consequences of my actions can create problems that negatively impact me and others around me. And chances are, everyone sitting in this room has, has made mistakes, has sinned, and, and then felt that way. Man, if it wasn't for me, these bad things wouldn't be happening right now. But in the case of Mordecai, he did what was right, at least in the eyes of God, right? He did what was right, and these negative com- consequences came. So, have you ever... Been in that position. Maybe you've told the truth because you know the truth is the right thing to say. But instead of things coming out well, bad things happen as a result. Maybe you did the right thing at work. You followed the procedures. You did what you're supposed to do. But instead of everything working good, they begin to fall apart. Maybe. In relationships with other people at work or even things happening there. Because we live in a broken world, sometimes you can do what is right and still suffer negative consequences for it. In fact, as Christians, the Bible warns us that we can actually expect that to happen in this world as the world. drifts farther and further from God and goes downhill. The Apostle Peter put it this way, he said, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering, how? Unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. I mean, that's a hard verse, right? Because basically that that is telling us don't whine and complain when bad things happen to you and you've done what's right. You're not suffering. You're not getting consequences for doing something wrong. That at least you could understand. Well, I deserve that. I get that. You don't deserve this. It's unjust because you've done what is right. And that's when we want to whine and complain, isn't it? God, this isn't fair. I'm just following you. I'm just doing what's right. And, and now look at these bad things you let happen. And it says we find favor with God when instead of whining and complaining, we bear up with patience. And that word patience, by the way, is a, a very active word um, in the Greek. It means, it means, to, it means to be... Actively involved in in uh, uh, pursuing what is good and and um, and positive, um, Mordecai must have been feeling guilt feelings over his actions, bringing this death penalty on all the Jews, even though he did what was right, and and he must have suspected that Esther probably didn't have a clue about what was going on because she was hidden away and insulated there in the palace. So look at verse 8. He also gave him, him that Hathak, the servant, a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go to the king and to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Now Esther would be able to read with her own eyes and, and see exactly what all was happening. And Mordecai's plan for Esther was that then she would use her position to go plead their cause uh, on the behalf of all the Jewish people uh, to the king. And notice the verse says he ordered her to go talk to the king. I guess, you know, once you're a father, uh, it's your daughter, even if she's queen, you, you still think you can order her around. And, and so he, he does that. And Hathak took this information back to Esther, and can't you know? It doesn't describe for us what emotional impact she she may have had when she read that. I mean, obviously, she would have immediately thought, Mordecai, my, the man who raised me, is going to be killed. All the Jewish friends, families that she grew up with, their lives were all for, forfeit. I mean, it, it had to be devastating news to her. But in, in terms. Uh, of going to the king to plead their case, um, she had a problem. Check out verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. See, so the rule that was in place there was not just you know, to build the king's ego to make him feel important. Uh, this, this was a way of protecting him from would be assassins and, and other harm. And nobody, nobody came into the king's inner court without a formal in- invitation. It didn't matter who it was. And, and the default setting for anybody that would dare to do that was death. The the guards come and grab you and take you away and and execute you. And only if the king felt like it would he raise his golden scepter and allow the person to live. And remember, this king was notorious for bad moods and rash decisions, right? Just because you were his wife didn't mean that he was going to accept you. Oh, yeah, come on in. I mean, look what happened to Vashti when she defied his rules and orders, and these were his rules and orders. I mean, this, this guy, I mean, you want to know the mindset of this guy? When, when he was... Uh waging his campaign against Greece. And I, remember, I told you there was a great big storm that wiped out some of his ships and the bridge he was trying to build across and, and, and ruin, wrecked all his plans. He ordered several of the captains of his armies to take chains down to the ocean and flog the ocean to punish it for, for uh, disrupting his plans. This, this was this man. As he was marching to Greece... He he had to pass through this small country with a great big long name, so I'm not even going to attempt it. And and the king of this small country welcomed him in, fed him and his army, provided him with lots of extra money out of his own treasuries in in order to help finance the campaign against Greece. And all five of this king's sons joined the army with him. But but then the king, the day that, that the army was supposed to start heading back out, the king came to him and said, I've got my five sons. Can my eldest son stay back and take care of me because I'm old and feeble and I don't have much time left? And Ahasuerus flew into such a rage at that request of this man who had done everything to help him that he had the oldest son of that boy brought before the king, hacked him in two pieces in front of the king, and then ordered his army to march between those two pieces on their way to Greece. That's the mindset. That's what Esther's having to deal with here. And so she tells Mordecai, uh, no, that's not a good idea for me uh, to go into uh, the king. I mean, he hasn't wanted to see me for the last 30 days. Is he mad at me? Did I displease him somehow? I, I don't know. But death is the normal consequence of an action like that. So Esther sends her message back to to uh, Mordecai basically saying no not going to do that and and that brings us to what are probably the most famous lines from the book of Esther and this is the pivot point of the entire story what Esther decides to do based on what Mordecai says back to her right now makes all the difference in this entire account and here's what he said then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther do not imagine That you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai makes you know three basic points to Esther at this, right? Number one, she shouldn't think that just because she's queen uh, that she is going to be insulated from from, uh, the consequences of this edict. The order is to destroy all the Jews, old and young, men and women. And as an only child and an orphan, when she was killed, that would be the end uh, of her father's household. Number two, God God will act for the welfare of and the benefit of his people. Now, again, I, I know that God's name is not used in the book, but, but look at what Mordecai said, right? He said, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Well, who's going to do that? See, it's, it's God. The the clear implication is that God has a plan and He will take care of His people. God's not going to let them be wiped off the face of the planet because God has made multiple promises to Israel. And He has kept every one of those promises, but there were several yet to be fulfilled. And in order for God to be a God who keeps His word, He had to save the rest of these people so that He could fulfill His word to them. So Mordecai was confident that that relief will arise somewhere because God will be faithful. But then his third point was this. hey, Hey, doesn't it make sense, Esther, that God placed you in this position for exactly this purpose? You're the only Jew in this entire kingdom, in fact, in all the provinces in the world, who have a chance to get the ear of the king. God's hand of providence had moved so that Esther was gathered in with those girls, was given favor, and, and and was selected as queen. You can see God's hand at work through all those circumstances. Don't you think, Esther, that God placed you here, right now, in this position, for such a time as this? Well, before we look at Esther's response, I think there's some... Lessons that are applicable for us this morning. Uh, for us, you know, most every day uh, our lives are, are pretty routine, right? You, you get up, you, you go to work, you, you, you uh, uh, day in and day out, you just do the normal stuff that you do. You go home, get, go to bed, and you get up the next day and you do the same thing. It's all very routine. Now, Getting selected as queen like Esther did, that was certainly out of the ordinary. That wasn't part of the routine. But then think of her life for the next five years or longer. We don't know exactly how long. It's at least five years that she's been queen at this point. Esther had been living a rather routine and boring life. But occasionally, a defining moment arises a person is called upon to put godly and biblical principles into action above and maybe even at the cost of your own personal safety and benefit. So, uh, lesson number one for us. Let me repeat that. There will be defining moments in your life when you must choose between acting on biblical principles or pursuing personal comfort and safety. Now, chances are it's not going to, you know, be at the same level of consequences as Esther's where millions of lives are at stake. But, but even if the stakes are not that high, there are divine moments that present us that opportunity to live boldly for Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe your defining moment will come in the opportunity to offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt you deeply and maybe doesn't really deserve forgiveness. Or it might come at work or school when there is a clear opportunity to stand for Christ and you know everybody's going to be watching you. I mean, there's any number of things that come up that are outside the routine of our lives that present you with that choice, a defining moment when it won't necessarily be easy to do what you know is right and biblical, but the choice will be clear. So lesson number two, God puts us wherever we are for a reason. But well, we may you know, need patience to see that reason and then courage to walk in it. Again, think of Esther. How many times do you think she was sitting Lonely in that palace. Mourning the life she knew she'd never have. The one she had dreamed about all the time as a little girl. A, a loving husband. Her own family and home. And it would have been easy for her to say, God, wh- what am I doing here? Why, why did you put me here? And for years, years, she waited in that place with no indication of what God's purpose or plan was for her. Until this moment when it whacked her upside the head like a two-by-four. Then all of a sudden, she arrived at that divine moment. She was there. She was queen for such a time as this. And after years of routine living, her moment came. Maybe... You've thought similar thoughts. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Perhaps you've been wishing for something different, a different location, a different job, a different position. You know, so I, then I could serve Jesus. Let me encourage you. God has you right where you are for a reason even if you can't see what that purpose or that reason is right now. So he has you there. Do you you just then sit around twiddling your thumbs until the two-by-four comes and whacks you alongside the head and says, here's what it is? Well, you could, but I think a much better plan would be to prepare yourself. If we know and if we believe that God has us where we're at right now, whether you're young and just getting ready to head into life, or whether you're retired, God has you right here for a purpose and a reason. And you might not know what that is, but you can prepare yourself for it. And you think, well, how do I prepare myself for it if I don't have any idea what it is God is going to want me to do? Well, the best way to prepare yourself is simply to start serving Him right now where you are. Do what you can do in His service right now, and you will be prepared for when that defining moment comes in your life. Lesson number three. This one comes from uh, Esther's response. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my maidens also will fast in the same way and thus I will go into the king which is not according to the law and if I perish, I perish. So before embarking on this mission of dangerous obedience, she seeks God and gets others to seek God on her behalf. How wise is that? The the verse says that Esther... Asked, said she's going to fast, and we wanted these other people to fast with her. But for the Jew, fasting was always accompanied by prayer, seeking God's help and His strength and wisdom from Him. Now again, w- with us living in a fallen and broken and often hostile world, every time we stand for God, that that is an act uh, of, of dangerous obedience, isn't it? But as I said, there's Going to be those bigger defining moments that come to us as well, the ones that really stand out. And, and of course, e- even in the little things, in these routine day to day living, it's wise to always pray and to seek God for that. But when you sense that bigger defining moment coming, it is absolutely essential that you do that. And very wise that you not only pray, but like Esther, you get others praying for you. Ask your friends church members, people you trust to pray that's what Steffi did before making a decision to go halfway around the world and spend a couple years ministering to other people it's what we should do before making big decisions like who to marry or should I move my family to some other city and relocate and take another job or you know all these types of big things that come our way We need to pray. Notice with Esther, her choice was already made. She realized what she had to do. So she wasn't asking for prayer like, oh, should I or should I not do this? It was already made. She was asking for prayer on how to implement it and that it would go well. And we need prayer. Maybe we need prayer for the choice. Maybe we're not sure which way but maybe we also do know the choice is clear and we just need prayer on how to implement it and what the results are going to be once we do that. Either way, the principle is still the same for us, right? Pray and get other people praying with you. So three main points. Life may seem pretty routine most of the time, but there's always going to be defining moments when you are called upon and have the opportunity to live in bold obedience to Jesus Christ. Number two, God has put you right where you are for a reason. Embrace that. Accept that. Know that. I'm here and God's got a purpose for me. That kind of changes your attitude and and perspective when when you're looking for what God has you, you here for. And number three, when your moment comes, seek God in prayer. Get others seeking on your behalf because it's only then that you can move forward with confidence and boldness to do what God's put you here to do. The rest of Esther's decision we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank You that Your Word teaches us, it instructs us. And Lord... We do want to live lives of bold obedience. So we, we pray that, first of all, we would know and accept that that opportunity will come right here and right now where you have us because you have us here for a purpose. And that we then, as we patiently wait and seek those defining moments, that we would serve you so that we'd be prepared to live that life of bold obedience. And God, may we have others seeking on our behalf because we know that prayer is the key ingredient to living confidently in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.